You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Parents, I want to challenge you that uh, we only get to serve with your kiddos for about 40 minutes a week. And you get them all the time. So the challenge is to you that it's your job to disciple them up and raise them up in the ways they should go. So we want to come along and help you. So hopefully... Uh, you'll take some time and say, hey, what did you learn back there, and how did that go, and have a conversation about it. I think you'll be blessed abundantly by it. We are really seeking to reach the next generation from our generation. What a great mission field out forward, and so I hope you will join us in that effort. If you have your Bible and uh, you'd like to make your way to Ezekiel, some of you are like, what, that's in the Bible? Yeah, Ezekiel. We're preaching out of Ezekiel today. Ezekiel 37 we're going to be in verses 25 through 28. If you're using one of those pew Bibles nearby, that'll be on page 769, Ezekiel. Um, that one might be a little bit harder to find, so I'll give you a second longer to find it. Here's a trick. If you're new here, if you're a guest and you want to follow along in the Bible, literally just take the Bible out and say, hey, I don't know where Ezekiel is. Hand it to the person next to you and say, hey, can you help me find it? And they'll find it for you, and they'll be happy to do so. But we just want to be Bible's open in laps, app's open, we want to be reading this together. Um, So I would just like to start with the reading of God's Word, Ezekiel chapter 37, starting in verse 25. I still hear some pages turning, so I'm just going to delay a little bit longer so we can read together. All right. Ezekiel 37, 25 says, "...they will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob." Where your fathers lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Uh, It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your unified church around the world, unified around one gospel, unified around one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord. God, I'm reminded this morning that we are among your many that are worshiping you today, even some who've worshiped much earlier than us in other parts, and some who will worship later. God, thank you that we can be united together in this. And Lord, thank you for your promises. Thank you, Lord, that you have made promises and you keep your promises. And God, you have promised us much, and we know that you will keep it. So as we seek to place our faith and our hope and our trust in you and hang on tightly to those promises, Lord, remind us of those promises this morning and remind us how you are the God who fulfills your promises. God, I also want to ask that you would bless the churches who are struggling greatly in other parts of the world through persecution, Lord, through, through lack of resources, through all sorts of difficulties. Lord, as we send even funds to help the missionaries that go there this month, Lord, I ask that you would go ahead of all of it, that you would bless it abundantly, and Lord, that your word would reign true in those places, that we would hear the ringing of your glorious name throughout all corners of the earth. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, we we opened up the Bible, and we saw that thread of redemption that just runs all the way through the Bible uh, from Genesis 3.15, where God made a promise 
that he would redeem his people all the way to the new heavens and the new earth, all the way in Revelation. We just looked at that, that thread. And this morning, this promise that we've read from Ezekiel 37 is one of those points along the thread. It's one of the pieces that's just in that whole trajectory. We see that these promises that are given, they're, they're there to give us hope, and we know that God keeps his promises. Now, I know what most of you are thinking. You're saying, this is a really strange text for Christmas. And when I started looking at this, I I thought that too. But the more I've really dug in to what Ezekiel has here, I realize this is a Christmas text. And I hope by the end of our time this morning, you'll see it too. That's my prayer. Um, But here's what we need to do. If we're going to actually understand what's here, we're going to need to understand what's here because there's a lot here. If we're going to do that, if we want to see what's in the part I just read, 25 to 28, we really need to understand it in its proper context. We can't just lift a scripture out and read it and then say, oh, it's this or it's that. We can make that say whatever we want it to say. If we don't know the context in which it resides, um, then we can sort of lord over the text. We do not want to do that. We need to understand the whole thing. We don't need to hear what we want it to say or what we can manipulate it to say. We need to hear what God wants to say to us. So to do that, I have to read a pretty big chunk of Scripture because that's the context in which this resides. So if you'd like to read along with me, I'm going to read, and I think we'll have it on the screens too, I'm going to read verses 15 all the way back, catching up to where we were just reading in 25 and then all the way to the end of the chapter. So about half of this chapter from Ezekiel. So this is Ezekiel 37 starting in verse 15. The word of the Lord came to me, and the me here is Ezekiel, verse 16. Son of man, take a single stick and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick so that they become one in your hand. When your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick so that they become one in my hand. When the sticks you have written on are in your hand, And in full view of the people, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from around, excuse me, I will gather them from all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will rule over them. They will no longer be two nations and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols, their abhorrent things, and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow all of my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. Now here's where we started reading. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren, and my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, 
it will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God and they will be my people. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. So Ezekiel, this prophet of God, right off the bat is told to take two sticks, probably like these, although probably square, because these would be hard to write on. He's told to take two sticks, and on the one stick, he's supposed to write, uh, let's see what he writes in it, belonging to Judah, the Israelites associated with him. Okay, and then on the other stick, he's supposed to write, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house associated with him. This is God's illustration to the people. He's showing them something. He's making a way to communicate in this way. And then... Ezekiel's supposed to put these sticks, we'll go this way, in his hand. So when he holds it, it looks like he's holding one stick. Okay, and he probably was going to walk around, and the people were going to see it, and they're going to say, what's all this about? This is the illustration that God had for the people of the day. Okay, what's this all about? Well, I hope you can, can hang with me. Hope you've had your coffee this morning. <laughs> you probably remember... Way back in like Genesis 17, 8, when God chose to make a people for himself. He chose a a particular group of people that he was going to use as missionaries to the whole world, to bless the whole world. He he chose them out of the world in which they were in, out of the trajectory which they were in, and it started with Abraham. And he made a promise to Abraham when he chose Abraham. He said, as part of that promise, he said, I will be your God and the God of all those people. And they will be my people. They'll be mine, I'll be theirs. That was part of the promise. And then, that promise wasn't just Abraham. We actually see it be transferred down from Abraham to his son Isaac. Same promise. And then the promise is even enhanced a little bit. And then it goes from Isaac to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, here's where the confusion is going to start. Because so far we're seeing this, it's, it's just being handed down. But it gets a little bit more confusing because God changed... Uh, excuse me, God renamed Jacob. He did change his name, but he renamed him and called him Israel. Okay, so now, this is where it's going to... I'm going to have to say Jacob and Israel, and that's, that's the one person. Okay, so Jacob, or Israel, has 12 sons through a couple different ladies. And uh, <clears throat> all these sons end up becoming individual family lines, tribes, named after those sons, all the way down to their, their family line. So we have these 12 tribes. Judah, which we heard about in this, this stick-riding thing, was one of those tribes. Okay, and so was Joseph. Now, more confusion. Joseph actually had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Israel, or Jacob, loved those grandsons. And so what ended up happening was Joseph's line actually, instead of being just the line of Joseph, became sort of two half-tribes, one called Ephraim, the other called Manasseh. Um, Together, they'd be referred to as the tribe of Joseph, but more often they're referred to as half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, you tracking with me so far? So far, so good. Okay, so if God wants to refer to all the people, or even if the people of the day wanted to refer to all the people, then they would all be called Israel named after the father, or they could be called Jacob, 
named after the father of those lines. That's how you would refer to all of them. Then if you wanted to refer to the individual lines, they'd go by their various names. So about 475 years after Jacob, Israel, died, a man named Joshua, who followed Moses, actually divided up the promised land when they came out of the Exodus and they got there. They divided up the promised land among all these tribes, except Levi didn't get land, the tribe of Levi. They didn't get land, they had a different purpose. And Ephraim, the half-tribe, and Manasseh, the half-tribe, both got, they both got land assigned to them. So we have 12 different tribes in the land, all with these different geographical areas. Okay, It's a little bit like um, the early United States with the 13 colonies. Okay, so they all have different land. They're kind of one people. They're also each individual groups. And then to refer to all the people and all the land, they would call it the people of Israel or Jacob. Okay, so far so good. About 385 years after the land all got divided up, David, from the tribe of Judah, was anointed king over all the people. They, the people decided, we need to have a king. All the other nations have a king. We need to unite all these tribes or colonies under one king. And so therefore, the people wanted a king, and they wanted to choose the king. Incidentally, they chose the guy who was the tallest, because apparently that's the criteria back then. And then there's always a bigger giant, and there's always more problems, but they chose a tall guy, and, and his name was Saul. <clears throat> didn't go very well for them. So God had another king that came in behind Saul after Saul failed on so many levels. His name was David, and David was a man after God's own heart, and David was God's choice to be king. Now, God was supposed to be the king, but the people rebelled and said, no, we want, it. we want an earthly king. But David trusted God most of the time. He did have some pretty epic sins that involved murder and adultery and all sorts of things, but he was still a man after God's own heart, and therefore he sort of became the gold standard of what the kings of Israel should be, what God's man as king should look like. And then God promised that there would be someone in the line of David, the tribe of Judah. Someone in that line would be on the throne forever. There was a better king coming. He was far superior and will be superior to David. That was the promise. Right now, David served, his son Solomon served, and now it's 80 years after David was anointed king, so we're getting out here in time. Solomon, the next king, dies, and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, from the tribe of Judah, was made king. So far, so good. Oh, except politics. Stupid politics. Turns out that Solomon had instituted some taxation that the people did not like and some policies And ten of the tribes said, forget this, we're out. We're succeeding from the the group of tribes. So ten tribes, all up to the north, said, we're done with this. And all that was left was Judah, the tribe of Judah. That's where Jerusalem was, kind of the capital, the whole thing. And uh, then the other tribe, Benjamin, hung with with Judah. And Rehoboam was their king. Um, The other tribes, the ten tribes, picked a man named Jeroboam from the tribe of Ephraim. That was the line. The reason likely from the tribe of Ephraim was because it was a big tribe at the time, and it was a powerful tribe, and and, you know that's probably where we should get our king from. So they chose this guy. And now here's where it gets really weird. The ten tribes need to have a name for their nation, right? So what did they choose? Israel. 
We're going to be called Israel. Now, if you're in the other two tribes, you're like, hey, what gives? That's supposed to be the name for all of us, but nope, you've gone ahead and hogged it for yourself. What they're, what they're saying is, you guys aren't part of the real group of God's people. Except that's where the temple was, and that was the line of Judah, and that was what God had promised. So, so we have a problem. We have a problem. And now in the, in the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they're like, well, we need a name. And they already took Israel, so I guess we'll be called Judah. So we have Israel, or Jacob, <clears throat> and Judah. Now, if you're in those two tribes, you don't want to call the tribes up north Israel, do you? Because don't you feel like you're still part of Israel? So, like, we're not going to call them that, so we're going to call them Ephraim. Now, it's the name of only one tribe, but that's going to represent all the ten. Ephraim. The thing up north, that's Ephraim. Okay, so now you have, you have Judah and Ephraim and these kings, and you have all these problems, and, and are you... Are you thoroughly confused now or are we good? It's kind of like following the Marvel movies and the timelines and the characters. So I'm going to give you a really quick recap. There's a nation called Judah. There's a nation called Ephraim. And when they're all together, they're called Israel. Okay? All right. There's still more. This continues. So now, fast forward 361 years. And the, excuse me, 361 years after the kingdom split and that whole thing went down. So we're clear. God tells Ezekiel to take a stick and basically write Judah on it, take another stick and write Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, he's providing a little clarity on that tribe, and then make them look like one stick, okay? So that people would specifically say, hey, what gives with your one stick? That was the idea. Okay, now, we could make up an answer, plenty of people do, if we take this out of context, we have an answer that says this could mean this, and this could mean that, and there's this and that, whatever. We could make up an answer, but we don't have to. Because God has graciously told us exactly what these two sticks together mean by what he told Ezekiel to answer their question. Okay, so let's take a look at that. Go to Ezekiel thirty-seven, nineteen. Look down there. It says, uh, tell them. So when they ask, won't you explain these things? Tell them. <coughs> Excuse me. Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him. I'm going to put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick so that they become one in my hand. That was the answer. Wonderful news, right? Wow, praise the Lord. God is going to make his people one people. And he's going to put them in his hand where no one can snatch them out. That is fantastic news, but there's a problem. 361 years earlier, the Assyrian Empire came in and completely wiped out the ten tribes. I mean, wiped them out. Killed them, slaughtered them, hauled them off to other countries, deported them everywhere and said, you're out of here. Just annihilated them. They're gone. They're lost. They're scattered. So that's going to be a little tough with that whole Ephraim stick. God's going to bring that back. And and there's still another problem. 64 years before Ezekiel gets this prophecy to do this thing with the stick, the Babylonian Empire came and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, grabbed anybody of any prominence or any ability whatsoever from that land, so now this is the people of Judah, and hauled them to Babylon, And they hauled other people from other nations they conquered into that area. And the reason they mixed them all up is so they could never really rise up and and fight back. 
Now they're in foreign lands, there's slaves everywhere, and they only left the worst of the worst in Judah. Um, that was 64 years before this. In fact, Ezekiel has got these two sticks in his hand. And you know where he is? He's in Babylon. Telling the people who got hauled out of that land, who also knew that years and years earlier, the other nation got wiped out, and he's saying, hey, God's going to do something. God's going to do this. People probably thought that was a little strange. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? This is what the promise would be. Look at, look at what he's telling them, verses 20 through 23. This is what he's telling them in exile. When the sticks you have written on in your hand are in the full view of the people, tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone, Oh, and I will gather them all around and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will rule over them. They will no longer be two nations and, and will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their abhorrent things and all their transgressions. I will save them from all their apostasies by which they sinned, and I will cleanse them. Then they will be my people, and I will be their God. Okay, well that actually sounds exactly like what comes next. Because a few years later, they're all allowed to go home. 32 years later, they all get to go home. And this right here, what we just read, is totally fulfilled. God's promise comes true. <clears throat> they're one nation. Hopefully some of the people who got scattered and we don't even know where they went came back. We don't know. But God did it. God fulfilled his promise. But, but what comes next has caused a ton of debate and tons of questions. Okay, There's a lot more going on here than just that. And so let's go ahead and take a look at that. It continues, verse 24. <clears throat> i got to not do that. Easy. There we go. Verse 24. This is still continuing on what's going to happen. My servant David will be the king over them. And there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren. And my servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. There's a lot going on there. First of all, King David has been dead for 400 years. Okay, so that guy's not coming back to be the king unless... That's a reference to the promise of the better king to come, which we start to see repeatedly throughout the Bible as the son of David, the one in the line of Judah, the promise to come. So he must be referring to, to that fulfilled, or that promise that will be fulfilled. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. The promise I made about David is going to happen here. He also says, oddly, that David will be their king and their prince. Did you catch that? 
That doesn't sound like normal politics of the day, does it? There's something going on here. And it says God will make a new covenant with them, a covenant of peace. See, they were in the covenant of works. Do good, you get blessed. Do bad, you get punished. But I'm going to make a new covenant that will unite us together. That covenant of peace sounds great because we call it something else. We call it a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace that unites the people. And now there's peace between God and mankind. That's the covenant he's referring to. Something big is going to, have, going to happen here. And I suspect the prince... He'll have a nickname, might be called the Prince of Peace, as the mediator of the covenant of peace. You see what's happening there? And then God will sanctify them. How? He's going to put his sanctuary in their midst with them. He will dwell with them. He will be their God and they will be their people. Okay, there's a lot of questions about exactly when and who and how and what and some of the details and, and is, when is this taking place and is, there's lots there. But there's one thing for sure. God has promised to rescue his people, and God will do it. That's what's here. Okay, you ready? Now, fast forward 573 years later. If you would, please turn with me to Luke, chapter 1. That's on page 905 in that pew Bible. Luke, chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 26 through 33. Now, this is not what you typically hear at Christmas. I get that. But I think you're going to see how valuable it is at Christmas. Gabriel is now going to show up to Mary. Let's read this, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have been found, you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Did you see what Gabriel just told Mary? The Son of the Most High, the Son of God, who, by the way, is going to also be your son, Mary, is also going to sit on the throne of his father, David. That is some weird language unless he's referring to that lineage of the line of Judah and the throne in which the better David will rule and reign from forever. He's the son of God and he's also the son of man and he's from the tribe of Judah. He's the promised, better, perfect King David who will rule on God's throne over his people forever. And that was all verse 32. And then God says more in verse 33. Who's Jesus going to rule over? He's going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. And I just spent like a whole bunch of time explaining what that means. So we should see it now and go, oh, the people of God, God's people. He will be their God. They will be his people. He's going to rule over those people forever. And now he's telling Mary he's coming. And not a long way out, but like about nine months out. Right? This is coming soon. Get ready. 
Now, here's the question. And I, I think this is an important one, and I think it's worth spending some time really just grappling with. Why did God tell his people in captivity after their temple got sacked, after they all got hauled off, they probably lost family members, they probably went through some horrific war, the whole thing was probably horrible, they've been in captivity forever, some guy shows up with two sticks trying to make it look like one stick with some stuff written on it. Why would God tell them about this king 573 years earlier? Those people aren't ever going to experience seeing Jesus born. They're not going to, they're going to go through their life hoping that he's coming, I don't know, next week. The week after that, but he didn't come for seven or 573 years. And then he came as a baby. What would people be thinking? I mean, he didn't tell them the date. He didn't tell them when. He just said, this is the promise and it will happen. Why would he do that? In fact, come to think of it, why would God have told Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to rescue the people? All the way back there. If Jesus wasn't going to come until all the way up here, why would God put that promise, I will put hostility between you and the the serpent and the woman, and her offspring will strike the serpent's head? Why, Why do that? You know why? Because we are saved by faith. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. They didn't have anything to hope for without the promise, did they? But they have everything to hope in with a promise that will be fulfilled, a promise made by God who keeps his promises. That's how they were to have faith. And then in Hebrews 11, it goes all these example, example after example after example of all those Old Testament people who were saved because they hoped in and had faith in the promise. Yeah, they placed their hope in the promise of God, knowing that God keeps his promises. And God's word says that's how they'd be saved. They didn't have to know when. They didn't have to know the details. They just had to believe that he would keep his promise, that he is who he says he is. And looking forward to the Messiah, the Savior who would come, they would be saved. They looked forward to the same Jesus, they just didn't know his name back then. That's how they were saved. And it's how we're saved too. They look forward anticipating the coming of Christ. We have the benefit and blessing to be able to look back, to have a name, to have details, to have a written record. That's how we're saved. Hear it from Galatians 3, 7 through 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. By having faith, it says we're brought into, adopted into, another text says grafted into, the people of Israel. And then God becomes our God and we become his people. You know then that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, which I think is almost all of us in here, unless we're Jewish, by faith. And he proclaimed the gospel ahead of time to Abraham. The gospel was proclaimed to Abraham, saying, here it is, all the nations we bless through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Now, here's a $100 million question. Faith in what? 
Hope in what, specifically? I could go to lots of places in Scripture. We have a baptism here pretty soon, so I just don't have the time, and you're all going to want lunch later. So I'm just going to go to one verse for now, and I encourage you to study this more. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, that's a promise. That's a promise of God. And every single promise we've seen thus far that God has made up to this point, he has fulfilled. Now, there are more promises coming, and he will fulfill those too. And this is one of them for you personally. He's making that promise to you right now. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, some of you are probably sitting in here saying, I don't even know what that means, Jesus is Lord. Who says that? And what does it mean that he was raised from the dead? If you don't understand why he went to the cross, who he was, what he promised, and what it meant that he went to the cross and was raised from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for you right now, if you don't get all of what I'm talking about, you need to come talk to us right away. Right away. Right after the service. Make an appointment. I'll buy you coffee. We'll open the Bible so you can understand what this means. Because the promise is if you let him call the shots in your life, that's what it means to call him Lord. And you believe that he is who he says he is and does what he says he did and keeps his promises and will do what he says he's going to do. His promise is you will be saved and you will be counted among the people of Abraham. And God will be your God and we will be his people. God will dwell with you and sanctify you and all the nations will know that God gets the glory. These promises of God, they give us hope. And it's that hope in which we place our faith, knowing that God will come through, knowing that what he did on the cross has the power to save and will save. We know that Jesus is who he says he is. We know that he does what he says he does and will do. He will do them. We know it. That's hope and faith. Just like those people looking at two sticks, like one. Imagine Mary's surprise when she heard Gabriel's announcement. That thing you've been waiting for for hundreds of years? Get ready. Imagine the shepherd's joy when the host of angels showed up and said, he's here. He's arrived. You know how it feels when like, you're anticipating a family member's baby being born and you're waiting and waiting. And, oh, yay, it's so exciting. Imagine that day. I've been waiting for this my whole life. My father waited for his whole life and his grandfather waited for his whole life and his grandfather. And they just kept telling me, just keep waiting, just keep hoping. It could be any minute. It could be any time. And for them, it was then. It was their time. We get to have the same joy every single time we celebrate Christmas and every single time we reflect on this and think about the promises that he keeps. And you know what Christmas does for us? You know what Ezekiel's promise here in this thread of redemption that runs through the whole Bible shows us? God keeps his promises. And every time you look at your Christmas tree and every time you say, hey, Merry Christmas, every time you open a present and every time you sing a Christmas song, remember, God keeps his promises. Merry Christmas. Hallelujah. God keeps his promises. Redemption is still happening. This is a working process. There's still a bunch of promises to come. We're not there yet. We should be anticipating. And it might not happen in our lifetime. But it might. Happened in the shepherd's lifetime. Happened in Mary's lifetime. Could happen in our lifetime. The rest of those promises could be fulfilled and worked out. And that personal promise that I just read to you from Romans, he's making to you right now and it can be fulfilled. God is still in the business of redeeming his people and adopting them into the people of Abraham and dwelling with them. 
So let us have joy as we remember that he's still working it out. Every year Christmas, what a great reminder. Christmas is proof that God fulfills his promises. That's what we should see this Christmas season. And that's what we should celebrate. Let's pray. Lord, I am so thankful that you fulfill your promises. God, I'm thankful that you save. I'm thankful that you've made these promises way out ahead so that we could have hope. And God, may we anchor our our lives around the promises that we're waiting to see fulfilled, around the promises that you have fulfilled already, and Lord, above all, around Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, continue to do this redeeming work. And Lord, please draw in and save and justify and adopt any who are hearing this online or in this room who do not know you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.